The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Oh yeah, we have got Chad Nation fired up. And I'm I'm just excited to learn more about this. Your concerns likely completely fair. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns right now. Really glad to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Matt anderson Barron, lead scientist and co-founder at Future Fields. This is an Edmonton startup. He was running this startup alongside while he was finishing his PhD on something completely unrelated, and they've created their first chicken product. They have grown a chicken, basically, in a Petri dish in a lab. And if that's not fascinating, I don't know how to get your interest. I don't. Now, super glad. We're kind of switching gears, but we're going to stick on this a little bit because a lot of really great points, some questionable anger on the text line about this and what this could mean for the beef industry, what it can mean for farmers, what it means for actual nutritional value and what it is that we're putting in our bodies. So Jason, the germ guy, Tetro, microbiologist, author of The Germ Files and the host of the podcast, our very own podcast, The Super Awesome Science Show. Hi, Jason. Oh, let me turn on your mic. How about that? Hello there. Hey, okay, so you were you actually sat in studio while I spoke with Matt, and you were nodding along, and you were taking notes, and you wanted to talk about this. And I said, why do you know so much about lab-grown meat? And you told me that, well, you've been culturing cells for 30 years, and culturing cells for something, whether you're talking about the flu or you're trying to create some sort of a fungus or whatever, it's kind of the same idea when you're in a lab. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're culturing. That's, that's basically what it comes down to. The only thing that's different is that when we culture in a Petri plate, everything is flat and two-dimensional. Uh, you take a matrix that's a three-dimensional and you start growing, and what's going to end up happening is that it'll grow and fill up that 3D matrix. So it doesn't matter if it's a human ear, doesn't matter if it's a kidney, doesn't matter if it's, you know, a chicken nugget. As long as you've got that 3D matrix that you allow yourselves to grow in, boom, you're good to go. And you mentioned Chicken Nugget because there is a company in the U.S. who says it won't be too long before they are rolling out Chicken Nuggets in some fast food stores. So we are not that far away. I'm going to read a couple texts to you, and I'll just let you handle it. Okay, You're, sounds good. You can react to this. Uh, we got this out of Slave Lake to 630-630. If you sign your name, I love you even more. Give me a break. Cultured meat, this is nonsense, and it has to stop. We need to rid of cattle farms because they take up land and fart too much. Stupid is what will end the human race. They say, oh boy, I worry for my children and grandchildren in the next 50 years. This one from Westlock says, if you stop farmers from raising cattle, the species will die off, especially in Canada. People will not spend money to raise cattle as pets. Signed, the concerned farmer. And another says, okay, so when only the rich can afford real meat, that's when the remaining 99% of us get the lab meat. I gave you a lot there to work with. Uh, maybe the first thing we tackle is them saying that this is going to be the end of cattle in Canada. Yeah, no. Uh, so basically what we're doing is we... Have you ever heard of greenhouses, hydroponics? Did that remove, did that destroy agriculture? No. Well, it's the same thing. Basically what we're doing is we're reducing the number of massive farms that we really don't need, these concentrated agricultural feeding operations or CAFOs for all the environmentalists out there. We're going to reduce those so that we can have, you know, good farms that are safe, have less of a chance of uh, infections. And, and, you know, we don't need to worry too much about the E. coli 157H7 anymore, that type of thing. And 
in its place, what we're going to do is we're going to be putting in these cultured meat operations. It makes perfect sense and it's already being done for plants. So if you happen to be buying something that was grown in Canada in the middle of winter, there's a good chance you got it from a hydroponic greenhouse. So don't start getting all but crazy. But if you're getting it from that. a greenhouse, you're still are you not still growing it out of dirt? You're just in a protected space with the right temperature and climate? No, I'm happy you brought that up because here's how it works with meat, okay? We use seeds for plants, right? Well, human seeds, if you will, for meat and, and muscle and, and also the same thing for animals and anything that's living is a stem cell. So what we do is we take that stem cell, which is a seed, and we grow it. No different than what we do with plants. The medium that we grow it in is a liquid as opposed to a soil. However, if you've ever looked at a hydroponic operation, it's also liquid, not a soil. So all you're doing is you are creating a different way of being able to grow a meat product without having to worry about taking care of the whole cow, pig, or chicken. Now, is that going to destroy the industry? No. It's going to regulate it down to a point where it's manageable and sustainable as opposed to where we are today. I just hear lab-grown and I think... I'm eating some kind of science. Like, it sounds like an experiment that looks like meat, and it's supposed to taste like meat, and and it likely will taste very similar to meat, just Mm -hmm. like all of the vegan products. And that's why I was just trying to figure out, if I'm a vegan, does that mean I can eat this because technically it's not real meat? No, because it is meat. You see, it's coming from that stem cell, which came from a cow or a chicken or a fish, if you will. So it is technically going to be a meat product. As opposed to, say, that A&W burger, the Beyond Meat burger, which is actually all plants. And here's the thing. That sold out in Canada to the point that they took several months to be able to get it back in. It's a plant burger. Now, if you can't see that as being a wider acceptance of alternative forms of meat or things that taste like meat, then unfortunately, you know, you've got blinders on. People saying that what this is going to do is run up the cost of real meat and then the poor, for a lack of a better term, are going to be stuck with this fake meat that's created in a lab. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, I love that. Um, To be honest with you, what's going to happen is that as we see uh, cultured meat increase in size and in production, the cost is going to drop. So cultured meat is probably going to cost less than regular meat. All right. That's a good thing. Because then what's going to happen is that it is going to put pressure on large agricultural facilities because they're not going to be able to get the money that they currently are getting. I still remember watching this documentary. It was a pig farm. And it was completely covered in pig manure. And all the guy said was, you smell that? That's money. That's my money. Well, the thing is, is that if you continually do it from uh, a greed perspective, yes, you are going to start destroying the planet's resources. I'm going to hop in just because I, we do have to tread carefully here. We are in cattle country, oh, I totally. the truest of cattle country. And I was just checking my phone to see if I had a message yet from Jeff None, our volunteer egg correspondent on 630 Chad, because when I've had him in, they've been pretty uh, emotional conversations saying that, some, sure, some there's, there's those mega cattle ranches down south for sure even they're struggling and he said talk to any farmer in Canada and not 
a single one is going to say we're doing it out of greed. At this point, we're doing it because of family heritage. It's traditions that have been passed down. We care about animals. We care about sustainability. So that's just where there's some sensitivities here, and I think fairly so. Absolutely. And no one of those particular types are going to be affected by cultured meat at all. It's as simple as that. Because if you're running a properly sustainable farm and you're producing enough meat to be able to sell, whether it be to one producer or one manufacturer or something along those lines, it's not going to be a problem. It's when you start seeing these massive, massive farms. They're the ones that are going to end up getting hit as a result of the rise of alternative meats. And that is why I specifically asked Matt if he thought this was going to appease a lot of the animal rights act- activists. The concern of, we, I mean, we've seen the, the footage of the chicken farms, of them getting shoved into these cages and suffocating mm-hmm. and maybe it's going to mean that you're not going to have to produce at such a rate that the, the safety and uh, I'm trying to think of a better term than respect for animals because I know people are like, okay, hey, come on, give me a break here. Yeah. But you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I know that this is probably going to end up in lots of hate mail because I'm in Alberta. But you know what? When Trudeau said diversity is what we need, the same thing happens with meat. The more options we have for things that taste like meat, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to have pure sustainability. The point I also made was I'm a big fan of the veggie ground round and there's yeah. no real meat and I make a mean lasagna and there's no real meat in there. Exactly. And it tastes amazing, right? Uh, and so the fact is, is, and I'm sorry for those eggplant people who, you know, try and do that instead. The reality is, is that when you have these meat alternatives, they taste so good. And this is what people are going to find out. It doesn't matter if it's a 3D scaffold or if it came from a really wholesome farm. It's going to taste excellent and it's going to be amazing whether it comes out of the oven or the barbecue. Okay, I want to talk about coffee with you while we're talking about good things. Uh, Apparently, there's actually some genetics happening inside (laughs) us that dictates whether or not we like coffee and maybe even how much we drink it. And we'll get all of the answers, and I mean all of the answers about what drives your coffee love or dislike with Jason, the germ guy, Tetro. Kelsey Campbell sitting in for Jalen Nye and Andrew Gross. And across from me is Jason, the germ guy, Tetro. I, I always love that he referred to himself as a germ evangelist. And uh, he's also the host of the podcast that uh, I get kind of to have a little bit of a hand in producing, the Super Awesome Science Show. And one of our episodes was released just today. Every Tuesday, another episode comes out, and this week talking coffee. In fact, you originally wanted to call it bean jeans. Yeah, because when you look at the idea of coffee, uh, we know that there's so many different types, and everybody reacts to it differently. And I don't know if you've happened to notice in the news, but there's always, you know, a clinical trial study that talks about how, you know, coffee is going to be good for you, and, you know, you should be drinking two cups or maybe four cups or eight cups, right? (laughs) And, And the reality is, is that the reason we don't have any consensus has to do not with the, the, the studies themselves, but with us. In, in, in each and every one of us, we have DNA, and, and those DNA codes are different, and that changes the way that our bodies react to a variety of things, in, including coffee. 
So you mentioned studies, and one of the big things I always notice is in the same week that a study comes out that says if you drink more than, insert number, mm-hmm. let's say four cups of, of coffee a day, you have a 50% more chance of getting cancer. And then yeah. the same week, later that week, another study will come out and it'll say drink at least two cups of coffee a day to ward off cancer. Yeah, and and I remember that week because I, I think I got about 50 phone calls from different organizations going, what's going on? It really comes down to the idea that we have such differences amongst us that if you happen to be looking at a wide variety of people at any given point in time, you're going to get different results. And, and, and so what we're trying to do on the show, at least in the first segment, is, is really give you an, an appreciation of what is happening as to why we see these differences in the studies. And the way we approach this, which was absolutely fascinating, is by how coffee tastes, the bitterness. It, it's all due to one particular protein that happens to be a taste receptor. And depending on how different it is from individual to individual, they'll find coffee to be incredibly bitter or not bitter enough. And that's one of the reasons why we see such a, a variation in how we react. And then we go into how that also impacts our health. If we were to use 630 Chet as a test pool, uh, just just kind of looking at people's coffee drinking habits, there are a few that I can tell you by name the number of times they go back to the coffee machine in a day. Mm-hmm. And some of them exceed 15 cups of coffee a day just during the work hours. Yeah. And then in my case, I have my one cup of coffee in the morning and I feel... Like, that's all I needed. And if I have more than that, I'm probably going to be zinging until the middle of the night. Is that a lack of sleep thing? Is that a genetic or DNA thing? Or could it be a combination of those that just absolutely feel they need that amount of caffeine to get through every day? It, it really is a combination of different factors. Um, sleep is one of them. Uh, your genetics is also going to be a, a factor in there. Uh, but also your diet. You know, how much water are you drinking a day? So your, your, your nutritional um, intake is going to also affect how coffee affects you. I mean, if you're constantly eating and eating and eating, um, the caffeine is just not going to get into your body with any great efficiency. Uh, if you're drinking lots and lots of water, well, then you're balancing out, right? Um, but if you're just drinking coffee and nothing else, then you're going to be getting those caffeine highs. And, and we know that there is that caffeine stimulation that happens and again depending on what your genetics are it may give you the buzz that's going to last you for six hours or it may end up only lasting you a half hour and you're going to have to go back to the uh, machine I wanted to ask you about the keto diet. Jillian Michaels just blew it up, hammered it, says it's <laughs> terrible, stay away from the keto diet. And it just happened to time out with you releasing a podcast segment last week about it. And one of the most fascinating things that came from that segment was me learning that the keto diet is actually good for some people while it can be terrible for others. And it can actually help with those who have certain diseases or chronic illnesses. Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, it was it, it originally started back in the 1920s as a treatment for epilepsy. Um, and so up until the 1990s, it really didn't go anywhere. And then in the 90s, when, you know, you had the, um, the models on the catwalk who were incredibly thin, you had the Monica versus Rachel who's thinner. You know, th- being thin meant everything. And, and at that point, the keto diet, which had a side effect of weight loss and fat loss, seemed to be, you know, gaining momentum. Uh, and, as that sort of grew, 
clinical trials were shown to support the idea that, yeah, you're going to lose weight. And there have been a number of these trials that have happened. However, as we find out in the show, and I'm not going to give it away, the amount of weight that you can expect to lose in comparison to other diets is probably less than you think. And more importantly, the side effects that could come from this diet, simply from having to stick with the idea of, you know, no to the very low sugars, um, only a certain amount of protein and lots and lots of fat may make it very difficult for you to stick with it. The keto diet, from what I understand it to be, just as someone who has never tried any form of a diet, is that you get to eat a bunch of bacon and uh, you don't have to worry too much about eating a whole lot of fruits and vegetables. Have I nailed it? Well, that's one version of the keto diet. Um, like, give, give me the understanding of just kind of the overlay of high fat and then it's low carb, right? Yeah, that's it, the goal. Yeah, so so what it really comes down to is low carb, med pro, medium protein and high fats. Um, and numerous different variations of that have come about over the last, uh, you know, 80 years or so. And I, I have a colleague of mine who studies uh, nutritional research who's even said to me that the keto diet that we see today has nothing to do with what we've seen in the past. Okay. We're going to talk about the World Health Organization. They've released the 10 biggest threats to our health this year. And she's sitting in studio with Jason, the germ guy, tetro, microbiologist, author of The Germ Files, and the host of the podcast, The Super Awesome Science Show. For those of you looking where you can find that, basically anywhere you get your podcast. It's a curious cast podcast. Uh, and we're really excited to have that as part of the Chorus family. We are talking about all kinds of cool things. Lab-grown meat, uh, pretty divided. People trying to explain to me why I shouldn't be freaked out by it. I don't know that I'm freaked out. It's just it's different than our norm. I also just want to know what I'm putting in my mouth. And you're always concerned about how, how legitimate is this? People get excited. Uh, they talk to Earls about when they... They want to move away from Alberta beef and mm -hmm. start talking about uh, eliminating hormones and don't use any sort of vaccinations for your animals. People start to get a little bit weary of what that means. Oh, yeah. And, and that really does come from the, uh, the, the the fear that's been caused as a result of genetically modified organisms. And I totally understand that, right? But you have to realize something. When it comes to lab-grown meat, there's none of that going on. It, it really is just coming straight from the stem cells those seeds, if you will, of the animal and then being used in a laboratory. And the food that you actually have in the liquid is no different than the food that you really would be giving them if, you know, they were cows on a field. It's just wrapping your head around it, right? But I even know. that, we don't, a lot of us don't want to wrap our head around where our meat comes from now. We've had these conversations with dairy mm -hmm. farmers, including Jeff None, our go-to egg correspondent. And he says, if you talk to some younger people or not even younger people, they think that meat comes from the grocery store. Yeah, exactly. That connection isn't built there anyway. Oh, I know. I totally. And I mean, I did my uh, undergrad at Guelph and, and part of that was doing food safety research. So I was in the abattoirs constantly and looking at how you can do proper, uh, you know, processing of foods to minimize infection was an absolute eye opener because you first had to learn how a cow turns into what you see on a shelf it's it's an art 
as well as a science. And when you start looking at it from that perspective, you really get to feel for um, not just the farmers, but also the people who are involved in the entire meat processing um, continuum, as we like to call it, from farm to fork, and everybody plays a role. And what I'm hoping that people understand is that by putting in cultured meat into this process, these people are not going to disappear. They're, they're still going to be there. They're still going to be absolutely valid. Where I get a little bit more excited is that when people start trying to figure out how they can, you know, um, condemn this before they even know what's going on, then that's when I start to get a little bit, okay, but it, hold it's on. different. It's change. It's very different than what we're used to. When, when we like to, now everyone else is moving to where all of the ingredients come from, every calorie that's going mm-hmm. to add up in there. This is, this is a complete shift in mindset. Oh, we, yeah. we also talked about keto and, uh, just a kind of a greater misunderstanding of what it is for mm-hmm. me it seems like I, I remember having a colleague that was on the keto diet so she would order pizza and then scrape all the cheese and the good stuff off top eat that and yeah. then throw away the right. pizza itself I, I know and and that's one of the things about keto that is really which is horrifying by the way in case you're wondering as a pizza lover I, I can't even imagine that um, the only thing that would be good with respect to having a keto diet pizza is that you probably won't have pineapples on it. And please don't at me. Anyways, um, the, the reality is that when you're looking at a keto diet, um, the, the whole concept of, of, of fats being the one thing that you want is really sort of the dominating factor. But when you start thinking about how you're going to do this long term, really, you know, a low calorie, low carbohydrate diet that you can stick with over time along with an exercise program is going to be so much easier. A question that came up just as we briefly touched on the keto diet is from Tiny Tim out of Drayton Valley, and he said, what is your opinion on intermittent fasting for cardiac patients? Well, it's still not ready for prime time yet. Um, There have been reviews on different types of clinical trials, and it does look like intermittent fasting is helping cardiac patients to reduce the the risk of uh, cardiac disease. It hasn't met that sort of standard of, of, of research where we can say exactly that you should be going on the intermittent uh, fasting diet. However, you have to understand something. Back in the 1920s when keto was actually developed, it was as a result of the fact that people were fasting and that's why they were seeing better things happening for them. So. Intermittent fasting is just sort of another phase in this whole idea as to how much should we be eating and when to be at our healthiest. And and for those who think that intermittent fasting is a new thing, um, cardiac disease and intermittent fast, fasting was first studied, you know, 30 years ago. Okay. The World Health Organization just this week released its report on the top 10 threats that they see to our health in 2019. The plan focuses on a triple billion target, ensuring one billion more people benefit from access to universal health coverage, (laughs) one billion more people are protected from health emergencies, and one billion more people enjoy better health and well-being. Reaching this goal will require addressing the threats to health from a variety of angles. But what it really boils down to is better health care systems for all. Yeah, absolutely. People need to have the ability to have proper health care. And this isn't something that, you know, has been around in Canada for 100 years. Um, If you look back to the Middle Ages, the people who had the best health care were actually in South Africa because the Dutch East India Company gave them a universal health care. 
Now, granted, it wasn't nearly as complicated and expensive as it is today, but by the same respect, people were healthy because they had health care. So if you look at, you know, centuries of, of data, centuries of, of experience, you are definitely going to see that having access to health care that is universal and, and hopefully low cost, it's going to actually, it's going to end up in, in, in better health for the entire population. This jumps out, and we're and we're going to try to localize some of these these threats and just see how can we manage them here in Canada. Yeah. Some of them are specific to different areas. Ebola makes the list, and we'll talk about that. That's yeah. obviously something we haven't had to face here. Uh, the top, the number one thing that they've listed on this is air pollution and climate change. Mm-hmm. The alarm bell started going off because in, in recent weeks, we have been seeing so many air quality warnings and advisories here in the city of Edmonton. Yeah. When you hear air pollution and climate change being a threat to our lives, where is that on your radar? Oh, it's like number one. <laughs> it's, I, I'm sorry. It's, it's just, it's no longer a question of whether or, uh, it's not even a question anymore. Air pollution and climate change are our biggest threats. It, it, that, that's what it comes down to. Now, as to how that climate change is happening, you can have all the debates that you want. And I'm not even going to get into that with you. What I'm going to get into, though, is the fact that our health is being adversely affected by the changing of the climate and as a result of the pollution that is being caused and and shared due to how our climate has changed. When we talk about air pollution here in the city of Edmonton, and you are originally from Ontario, Mm -hmm. a lot of people refer to Toronto as the big smoke. Right. How have you personally noticed the difference between Toronto's air versus Edmonton's air? Edmonton's air, believe it or not, is um, worse. I, sorry. It's just uh, sometimes it's not Edmonton's fault. Okay. Th- this summer, we did not have forests, but we had forest fire smoke. I, okay. However, what I don't really appreciate is when I go out for a walk at 830 at night and the air smells so bad that I can't go out. So... I get that there's obviously a different kind of air that we're going to have in this city, but I would very much like to do a study where we look at what are the chemical and microbial components in the air around Edmonton so we get a better understanding. I know that the uh, the um, province of Alberta has just released a study on that, and that's great, but I think we can take it one step further. And since we have two very useful universities in this city, um, I think we can put a study together just to find out what is in the air. Another thing that the World Health Organization has released, and this is something that I, it personally weighs on me, I think it weighs on a lot of us because it's just in our face. Non-communicable diseases... Diabetes, cancer, heart disease, they are collectively responsible for over 70% of all deaths worldwide, or 41 million people. It's, I think we, we live in the WebMD world, and that's probably mm-hmm. one of our biggest troubles. And I'm speaking on behalf of all of us because I don't think I'm alone in this boat. Uh, every time I, I start getting recurring headaches, I immediately jump to... I must have brain cancer, and, I, and I, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I have an aunt who died from a brain tumor, and it just weighs on you. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it's funny. Uh, 
I also go through this. Now, I don't go onto WebMD. I start looking at my own symptoms and everything. But every now and then I'm thinking, you know what? I should really sort of take down what's happening to me and send it over to David Shore or to Amy Holden-Jones, the people who do The Good Doctor or The Resident, and simply say, here's a show idea, me. (laughs) When in actual fact, I probably just didn't get enough sleep and I probably ate something a little too fatty, right? So it's totally understandable. And even the best of us are going to go through that. What we really need to focus on, though, are what are the real causes that lead us to having these major diseases? Now, we know diabetes, type 2 diabetes, as well as uh, heart disease, entirely preventable. When we start talking about cancer, uh, we start talking about type 1 diabetes and a number of other diseases that have a bit of a genetic base to them, bringing back genetics, what ends up happening is that sometimes they happen spontaneously. And... Unfortunately, there's very little we can do about that. We have so many conversations uh, about trying to push people to to quit smoking. Think of the the Mm long-term effects on your heart, your lungs, just about everything. And, and, you know, we should cut down on our alcohol intake. That's hard on your liver, on everything, again. Mm -hmm. And then we all have that story about our grandfather, our great-grandfather, or an uncle who smoked like a chimney, drank every day like a fish, and outlived whoever it was that lived the perfectly clean, healthy, athletic life. Mm -hmm. And that's where you're just saying, how do you motivate people to change some of their habits when they're the ones that outlive us all? Well, this is where we start getting into the big question of the environment versus what we do to ourselves, okay? Uh, I always get a kick out of it when they start talking to the people who are like 100 years old who live in the Mediterranean. They're like, I eat goat yogurt. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much goat yogurt you're going to eat. You're not going to be that person. One thing you have to realize is that the people who are incredibly old spent their immune years up to about 50 to 65 um, with no air pollution, with no environmental pollution. So the fact is, is that we are already, we've got problems already and it's not going to get easier. Glad to have Jason the Germ Guy Tetro in studio. Uh, Not everyone gets the opportunity to say that they were able to travel to Geneva and hang out with members of the World Health Organization. And you got to do that. You were on a panel, is that right, for Ebola? Yeah, I I was there for a conference and we talked about uh, how to stop Ebola. And it's funny, uh, the idea of universal health care was pretty much the answer that everyone needed to hear. Um, But I... I was, you know, doing some great work with the communications group. Uh, They're just such a fantastic group at the World Health Organization. They don't get enough credit. So I'm just happy that, you know, I had the chance. I don't really want to give them a lot of credit, though. They put out a report telling us basically every possible way that we can die in 2019. We only got to touch the surface. Ebola and other high-threat pathogens made the list. Weak primary health care. And for the most part, we're not talking about Canada. We're talking about third-world countries. But our health care system is where we are either and how many stories do you hear that if if uh, he wasn't on the waiting list as long as he was maybe mm-hmm. we could have got to them and this is not in any way a cut at the, the health care service providers that we have now because they are doing god's work they really are uh, vaccine hesitancy dengue virus hiv these make the list this year mm-hmm. uh, fragile and vulnerable settings uh, living in places that are, are kind of overwrought with crises, mm-hmm. famine, conflict, population displacement, antimicrobial resistance, global influenza pandemic. We only have 
60 seconds here. Should we talk about the flu very briefly here? We didn't think it was going to be this bad, and now it's it's proving to be pretty deadly. Yeah, uh, very quickly, it's pandemic flu. So you remember what happened in 2009? That's happening again. Um, the only difference is that many people got infected then, so they're probably not going to have much of a problem. Uh, the vaccine has had the pandemic in it for a number of years, so if you've been vaccinated over the last few years, no problem at all. The only ones who really should be affected at this point are children under the age of 10 years because they've never seen the virus. Unfortunately, um, if you haven't been vaccinated, if you haven't seen the flu before and you get it and you happen to be between the ages of about 35 to 60, there's a very good likelihood it's going to slam you hard. There you go. And I like the wrapping the thought with this because this is pretty heavy, but fascinating stuff. And ultimately, the World Health Organization is saying if we can provide universal health care to everyone around the world, we are not going to see the numbers that we do. Lives will be saved because of a strong health care system. And ours is one that they are taking a look at. The last word on this goes to a listener who says, eh, one shouldn't take life too seriously. It's not a permanent condition. The 6.30 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 6.30 Chad.